This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Rabbi Batsheva Appel, the interim rabbi currently at Temple Israel in Omaha. Rabbi Batsheva Appel has served congregations in a variety of different roles as a sabbatical rabbi, rabbi educator, settled rabbi, and interim rabbi, including serving as director of rabbinic services for the Goldring Waldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life, located in Jackson, Mississippi. Rabbi Appel is a trained Musar facilitator and is a certified interim rabbi. She is passionate about community, especially diversity. A native of Seattle, she graduated from Wellesley College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Biological Sciences and Economics, entering the corporate world before her increasing involvement in her faith practice led her to become a rabbi. Rabbi Appel's hobbies include reading, playing Dungeons and Dragons, doing the New York Times Spelling Bee, hiking, and competitive sock knitting. One of her goals is to go back to the Grand Canyon for a rim-to-rim hike. Rabbi Appel, welcome to Lives. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, is this a, uh, a temporary role, just to be clear? Yes, it is a temporary role. Okay. I'm um, here for the year. I arrived at the at the very beginning of July, and I'll be done with my year here at the very end of June in 2023. Okay, thank you. Um, so your faith journey appears not to have taken a linear route, a straight line. And I'm curious, what was your childhood like and what was the spiritual context of your family upbringing? So the spiritual context of my family upbringing is that my family was always very, very involved in the synagogue. My father was a cantorial soloist. Um, Both my mother and my father taught in the religious school. And both of them would go on to serve on the boards of directors or trustees of various congregations. And in fact, my mother eventually was on the national board of the Women of Reformed Judaism, which is associated with the um, Reformed Jewish movement. Um, And both of them were always very, very involved. And both of them Um, we went to services on a regular basis. What I frequently say, but people don't always understand, is that I grew up in a very religious, reformed Jewish household. We went to services every Shabbat, every Friday night and every Saturday morning. Um, We were part of the synagogue life. And um, so that was always part of my growing up. And, you know, at the same time, my my mother reminded me of this when I decided that I was going to rabbinical school. Um, When I was in the fifth grade, we were supposed to draw what we wanted to be when we grew up. I drew an astronaut and a rabbi. Those were the two things I wanted to do when I grew up. And I didn't think of it again until my mother reminded me of it when I decided that I was going to rabbinical school. Please tell me she still has that drawing. Um, uh, My mother, sadly, is deceased, um, and I haven't found the drawing yet, but I'm still looking for it. Still have to go through some of her papers. We'll explore a little bit some of the choices you did make about your life and your career Mm -hmm. 
Um, one of them, though, according to the bio I read, does not appear to have been astronaut. Any yearning still to explore space? Um, no, not really. Not really. I think I would end up getting sick. Um, <laughs> it seemed very cool at the time, and you know, and it made sense given that my father was working for the Boeing company, and he was working on building the rockets and building the lunar rover, and we lived in a variety of different places when I was a kid. Um, and so, yeah, um, I would say that um, the astronaut part made sense given what my father did. But the rabbi part made sense given what both my parents did. And it was, you know, it was all of a piece that I would eventually go to Jewish summer camp, um, that I would be very involved in the synagogue youth group, that I would be incredibly involved in the regional youth group, um, and that, you know, I would be involved in doing Jewish things when I went into college. Um, and after college, you know, I moved back to Seattle and involved again in the Jewish community and then decided to move to the Boston area for a job. And one of the things that I did, even though it wasn't typical, was to talk to my rabbi in Seattle and say, I'm moving to Boston. Can you tell me a congregation I can join? Not very typical, but that's what I did. It seems as if your childhood featured a, a context that was rich in faith practice and Jewish tradition and life. Um, this was in Seattle. And other places. Okay. So was that an intrinsic part of your childhood or were there other aspects of just being young and growing up that um, that informed sort of who you were at that time? I would say it was an intrinsic part of my of my growing up. I mean, I still remember the first time my brothers and I came home from camp, from attending a Jewish summer camp, and the three of us insisting that um, my family had to put a white tablecloth on the table and we had to have a Shabbat dinner. I don't know that my parents saw that one coming. Um, but, you know, we were very insistent. Camp was formative in that way. And camp was formative in my sense of spirituality, particularly when I was a teen. Um, both the music and the experience of learning and um, being out in nature. It was all it was all formative of that religious identity. So my childhood was not in America. It was in England. And I hear people talk a lot about camp. And mm -hmm. camp seems to be a euphemism for so many things that were a feature of people's childhoods. Mm -hmm. I don't really know so much about what that really means. So what, what was camp for you? So the first... Jewish summer camp that I went to was actually a camp run by um, another congregation in Seattle that my parents decided to send me to. Um, and it was my first experience kind of being immersed, you know, as a, as a young person in kind of a Jewish milieu 24-7. I mean, yes, you do Jewish when you're at home, but it's not like the immersion that you get at camp. Everything is more intense at camp. Friendships are more intense. The learning is more intense. And it and it sticks to some extent. Um, we then went to camp that was run by the Jewish Community Center. And that's both of my brothers and I went to that camp. 
Um, and again, um, it was it was all the things that you would do at a summer camp. So you know, um, boating and swimming and horseback riding and you know games and color wars and all of those things that you would do at any summer camp and living in cabins. Um, but again, there was kind of like a Jewish framework around the outside of it. And going to Jewish summer camps that were run by, at the time, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, uh, eventually the Union for Reform Judaism, um, you know, that all came to a head. I, I went to learn how to be a song leader in my, in my congregation and to learn the music and to be able to teach the music. I went to be, you know, the following year I went to a leadership program. The following year, I went to a counselor and training program, and it was all surrounded by that um, Jewish framework and that intensity. Um, and, you know, one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that the group of people that I was a counselor and training with, that I was a CIT with, um, got together again over Zoom because we could. We like tracked every, they tracked everybody down. And I didn't realize, I didn't really remember because I hadn't stayed in touch all these years, but three people out of that CIT group are now rabbis. Yeah. And a bunch of others are now Jewish professionals. And there's this, there's this emphasis, you know, this, this becomes foundational in the lives of many people who are involved in, Jew, in Judaism. And I find it interesting then, given everything you've been describing about how involved you were in in your faith practice and your interest in Jewish life, that you chose Wellesley to go study at, and it's a, a women's liberal arts college on the East Coast, and you chose biological sciences and economics. And I find that just really super fascinating, both those choices, the academic field of study and the location. I'm just curious, what was what was in your mind? What was driving those those choices? Um, the choice to go to Wellesley was, it seemed at the time to be the best fit, and I think it was. Um, I, think, I think it was the right place for me, um, even though I didn't do Jewish studies there. And the other thing that I will say is I'd always had an interest in um, science and biological sciences. And I had at the time that I applied to Wellesley this vague idea of going to medical school, um, which I decided like three, three years into Wellesley that that wasn't going to happen. But one of the observations that I will make is that um, I've noticed that when I meet people who have a STEM background, um, science, technology, engineering, and uh, math. Um, they have a fundamentally different approach to Judaism and to text study in Judaism. I can't articulate th what the difference is, but I recognize it when I see it. Um, so that there is, you know, a whole group of people who come to, you know, doing Jewish from that kind of background. And it informs actually how they engage in Judaism. You emerged from college mm -hmm. and you entered the corporate world mm -hmm. for a while. And again, I'm curious about this journey. So 
what what did you go to do and and again what were some of these motivators that were sort of pulling you into those fields at the time um biotechnology was very very new um and i was interested in being something that was very new that utilized the biology that i had studied and i was interested in eventually seeing if i could be part of the business side of biotech um so i started working for a biotech company in Seattle. I was actually employee number 35. Um and and enjoyed the work um and you know the stresses and the work. Um but then the um person that I was directly reporting to took a job in Paris and I ended up reporting to other people in the company and it was was less of a congenial fit. and i said you know i tried to see if i could get into the business side of that company and couldn't so i said you know what i'm going to look for something where i can do be on the business side of this kind of work so i picked three cities that i wanted to live in and started interviewing and ended up in the boston area um and that whole time i was involved in my synagogue I was still going to services i was still you know doing stuff in the synagogue in Seattle that I grew up in. So it feels then as if there is that through line obviously this passion uh, this interest in your faith. It seemed to have taken a while for you to arrive at that decision that epiphany maybe if that's the right word I'm not sure but that this actually is something you really should pursue diligently. And I'm I'm wondering if you might just describe that dawning realization that this actually is the moment to leave this corporate world and to pursue being a rabbi as a full-time vocation and and career in parallel i was working hard for this company in the boston area and i was you know moving up just a little bit and eventually became product manager of that company and our company was owned by a japanese trading company so they actually sent me to japan for a month to learn all sorts of corporate stuff um and simultaneously i was very very involved in my synagogue i was attending services i was singing in the choir i was taking any adult learning program that existed um as more programming and services were added i would attend those i was invited to be on the board of directors even though that's not usual a usual thing for a 20 something um i was invited to chair committees and um you know they would say things like well you know um would you like to chair the music committee and i'd be like so what does the music committee do music committee chair do and they're like Well, you know, you you're chair of the music committee. So I said to them, I said, "So if I'm chair of the music committee, does that mean that we'll get the robes dry cleaned, the choir robes dry cleaned?" And they're like, "See, you've already thought of something that needs to be done. You can do that." So one of the things I did as the chair of the music committee is I worked with the with the music director and the rabbis to create a new program. cuz we had a very big beautiful choir for the high holidays like 20 people and for a regular shabbat there might be 6 it's a big difference in sound <laughs> so i said let's do an augmented choir once or twice a year 
invite everybody to come for rehearsal, feed everybody Shabbat dinner, and then we can have the bigger sound of a bigger choir. Hugely popular. went really nicely. Um, then they made me chair of the um, Adult Education Committee. And it was working on a um, working on an adult retreat to Newport, Rhode Island, that I came that I was like, "Wow, I really like doing this. I think I'd like to be a rabbi." How does one become a rabbi? So it starts with stuff that seems really strange, like you know, taking the GREs. <laughs> Um, and getting your transcripts and things, um, and learning Hebrew. Um, and the way you do it is you apply to one of the rabbinical seminaries in the country, and then you attend for, you know, in my case, the program at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion is five years long. So for the first year of rabbinical school, I was in Jerusalem, and then for the remaining four years, I was in New York City. Your bio references so many aspects to how you practice the um, profession of being a rabbi, mm -hmm. um, uh, a sabbatical rabbi, rabbi educator, settled rabbi, interim rabbi. Mm -hmm. Could you just give some sense about what is the difference between those um, categorizations? So those categorizations um, emphasize different aspects of the rabbinate because there are many, many ways to be a rabbi. Um, you can be the only rabbi in a small congregation. You can be the senior rabbi or the associate rabbi or the assistant rabbi at a very large congregation. You can be the rabbi who runs the um, religious school. You can be a rabbi who fills in for another rabbi who's gone for six months on sabbatical. Um, and all of those are ways of being a rabbi. And the one that I'm doing right now is being an interim rabbi. But everything that I learned from all of those other positions of rabbi has informed, you know, what I do as an interim rabbi, where I can say things like, you know, Typically, what I see in congregations is this, that, or the other, or, you know, this is not typical to what I've seen in other congregations or best practices that I'm, you know, that I've learned include. And, you know, from, from this situation, I've learned, you know, let me share this with you. And having experience of a variety of different situations and a variety of different, different congregations gives me, you know, a knowledge base to to do the work that I do as interim rabbi. Is it hard to be an interim rabbi? And I ask just because it's pretty clear that part of, I think, any faith-based practice is a real caring for people and, and community. And so I just wonder, is it hard for you to be in an interim position when that is your role? And do you feel maybe, I don't know, just a bit disconnected sometimes when that is the situation? So I would say yes and no. I would say being somebody who's from outside and who is just a bit disconnected and not planning on being here permanently actually helps because it helps me make space for the settled rabbi who will follow me. 
Um, and I think that the whole idea of caring is exactly the important part of being an interim rabbi. An interim rabbi is a rabbi who comes in when there is some sort of change in the congregation and the congregation is going through transition. You know, one happens in one moment and the other is all of the emotions and all of the reactions to the thing that happened in the, in the moment. And it's helpful that I actually acknowledge that, yes, you know, people are happy about the idea of getting a new rabbi. And yes, people are apprehensive about getting a new rabbi. And yes, people are uncertain about getting a new rabbi. At the same time that they're processing all the emotions from, from whatever happened before I came, before I arrived. And I can arrive in, you know, a situation where it's very deliberate planning. And I can arrive in a situation where it's, you know, not so expected. And the congregation hasn't had time to prepare. Um, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, to which I belong, you know, works with congregations as they look for interim rabbis. And, you know, they, they recommend that congregations who've had a long-term rabbi consider getting an interim. Congregations that, you know, have a very sudden transition for whatever reason also look into getting a, an interim rabbi. And congregations that have a, um, you know, a an acrimonious separation from their previous rabbi should also look at getting an interim rabbi. That's not every congregation, but there are many situations where an interim rabbi is a good idea. That sounds like a, a mixed bag of possibilities mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you, as it were, look after yourself and perhaps look after your own spiritual and practical life in those situations where it seems as if the key theme linking all of those is it is a situation of change. So, you know, the ways that we ever look after ourselves, um, you know, try and cultivate good self-care habits, you know, as everybody knows what those are now. Um, and um, connecting with um, friends and colleagues. So I make, I make it a point to go to, you know, um, gatherings of my rabbinic colleagues. I make it a point to connect with friends of mine on a regular basis outside of outside of Omaha. And actually, this year, I, I actually have a couple of friends in Omaha, which was totally unexpected. Um, and to, you know, do all of that nourishing, not from the congregation, but from outside the congregation. Your bio references that you are passionate about community, especially diversity. Mm hmm. And again, I feel like that's a phrase that perhaps we feel like we know, mm -hmm. but I'm not entirely sure that it means the same thing to everybody. So I, I wonder what, what does that mean to you when you talk about your passion for community and diversity? So what that means is that if I'm speaking with a congregation about, you know, who's who has become part of the congregation and who has yet to become part of the congregation... I'm going to encourage them to 
not focus only on families with young children. Families with young children are a great thing to have in a congregation. But to look at everybody at whatever age they're at and whatever part of the life cycle they're at. Um, and to also not make assumptions about what constitutes a family. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned in, you know, being a rabbi educator is there are all sorts of people raising children who are not the parents of those children. There are guardians, there are grandparents, there are other relatives. So it means something as simple as when you're sending an email to the families of the class, you say something like, Shalom, fifth grade families, exclamation point, and not high fifth grade parents, because not all the people raising the children are their parents. It's that kind of diversity. So it's a diversity of ages. It's a diversity of points in the life span. It's not making assumptions about what people have and have not done and have and, and don't have. It's also being aware of all the variety of obstacles. So it's encouraging people, uh, uh, Jews of color, to become active in the congregation. It's about encouraging people who are not um, from an Eastern European background to become active in the congregation. There is a tendency to think that all Jewish life looks like Fiddler on the Roof, but that's not what all Jewish life looks like. And at the time of, you know, that the Fiddler on the Roof took place, um, you know, it, yes, it's fiction, but at the time that it's set, there are flourishing Jewish communities in the northern part of Africa and in, you know, and in Iran and Iraq and all of those places. Um, and so there's a flourishing Jewish community that comes from all of those places. And it also means um, understanding that not everybody that you're going to talk to is going to be um you know, being conscious of LGBTQ issues um, for, you know, understanding that there are a variety of people who come in to the congregation and simple things can be off-putting to them. It goes all the way down to understanding that we're working with neurotypical individuals and neurodivergent individuals. And that's something that you think sounds really excellent could be off-putting, at least if you don't warn them, then it's a possibility, as well as making sure that the space is accessible for a person who's in a wheelchair, a person who's on crutches, um, somebody who's deaf, somebody who's blind. The, to me, that's diversity. I mean, it is a very robust definition of diversity, but I think it's incredibly important I mean, if we're serious about it, it means we have to act it. It seems that in American life writ large that there is a decline in traditional religious practice. I don't know the degree to which you, in your time as a rabbi, have encountered either a 
decline in, in faith or if you just see a change in how people approach Judaism and traditional uh, life within the synagogue? What I would say is certainly, you know, we've read the research that the Pew Institute has done that shows that one of the biggest groups of Jews is the group that is none, N-O-N-E. Um, and, you know, there, there are a whole variety of reasons for that. I don't know that I would say that it's a decline in faith. I would say it's a decline in, for some, in religious practice. And that they're not, they're not understanding that they could get something that they might need and desire from the structures that currently exist. Because I think that, that there is a real, a real desire for community and connection, which is possible in a faith community but um, not everybody realizes that they could find, you know, they could find that there. So they look for it in other places. I think that's a, an important distinction too between why people have some kind of faith-based practice because it isn't just about the faith itself, although that's obviously a very important component. But sometimes for people attending a, uh, a place of worship is about the communion they feel with fellow congregants, uh, people that also are willing to be in this place at this time and share themselves mm -hmm. with each other. And, and I just, I, I imagine that's part of what you're describing here, this idea that people want to congregate. So I do think people want to congregate, but I also think that there are times that the buildings that we have, as beautiful as they are, and Temple Israel here in Omaha is really beautiful, um, actually crossing the threshold into the building can be an, an actual impediment, um, which is, you know, which is why I've actually suggested that this year as part of our whole series of services that we're doing for the high holidays, we're actually doing a service outside in the Jean Leahy Mall. Um, so because, you know, people do want to gather and, you know, we want to give people a chance to encounter us in a place other than our building. It feels like I, I, I love that idea of the innovation of that in some sense. And the pandemic itself, I think, has forced many of us into practices, behaviors, uh, rituals that have been reshaped or reformed or sort of created anew. And I'm, I'm wondering, knowing, for example, you mentioned technology earlier, I'm wondering, what are you doing perhaps to reshape and maybe innovate around your uh, your role in your work as a rabbi? Um. So I've actually been doing it for a while, even pre-pandemic, so it's harder to answer. Um, I've been teaching as part of the Union for Reform Judaism Introduction to Judaism online class since 2019. So I feel like that that predates the, the, the pandemic. But that's, you know, teaching a class of about 25, 30 people on Zoom for 21 weeks, an hour and a half at a time general overview of Judaism. So that that has become more commonplace. Um, I think, 
I think it's to the good. The fact that I could take a webinar with an organization that's based in New York City and learn from the scholars there is fantastic. That I can invite, you know, colleagues of mine to attend webinars, you know, uh, Tri-Faith Initiative just did an amazing webinar um, based on the book Awakenings. Um, I invited friends and colleagues to attend because I thought this sounds like great stuff. So I think that's been, I think that's been transformative. And I think the sad part of it is that before the pandemic, you know, I would hear from folks who would say, well, you know, can't we do something online? Can't we do something virtually? And the answer would always be, you know, we might, but it doesn't work and it's too complicated and it's too expensive and we really can't do that. And then, you know, within weeks of the pandemic, everything turned on a dime. Everything turned on a dime and all of a sudden, oh yeah, we actually could do that. And I'm, I'm not going to disagree with people who say it can be really hard to do things on Zoom. I'm not going to disagree with people who say it's really, really hard to do things in a multi-access faction where some people are on Zoom and some people are in person. And can't we go back to in-person only? And, and in that, I actually disagree because we need some... People who cannot come, cannot come, and they need some access to us. And in fact, I've been advocating for some things that are Zoom only. And they're like, uh, I don't know about that. It's like, yeah, no, Zoom only might be an interesting way to go. Um, because um, having listened to Priya Parker and her, in, her conversations about gathering, you know, one of the things that she's been saying lately is that this hybrid multi-access approach short shrifts everybody. So you should do some things that are in-person only, but you should also do some things that are virtual only. And I think she has a point. I want to go back to that whole diversity question. And I want to add that um, political diversity and making sure that people understand that we welcome a diverse range of political opinions is important as well. It occurred to me if we're in the spirit of going back that the purpose of this show is not to be didactic. It's not mm -hmm. meant to be an educational show. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I do expect people to learn something. Um, you referenced teaching around um, what Judaism is. Mm -hmm. And I think many listeners may have a sense of what it is. Mm -hmm. But America is predominantly, in terms of faith, a, a Christian faith practicing country. And so I wonder how many people have only a passing understanding of Judaism. And so I wonder if there is something you would share about it that you think is is worth people that perhaps are not familiar with Judaism that they should know. So it's very funny. I'm 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 amused because this question actually goes back millennia. So there's a very famous story in the Talmud. The Talmud is a book of um, gathering together of Jewish laws but it's not all legal. There's also stories in there. And there is a story about somebody who wanted to prank knock on the door of a couple of famous sages. So he went up and he knocked on the door of a famous sage by the name of Shammai and said, teach me everything that there is to know about Judaism while I'm standing on one foot. 
And Shammai, who was a general contractor on his day job, like shook a builder's cupid at him and said, get off my lawn. So he went to another rabbi and um, knocks on his door and says, teach me everything that there is to know about Judaism while I'm standing on one foot. And this sage was much more um, patient and says, um, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another person. This person was so impressed that he uh, decides to convert to be Jewish. So I would say that that's one aspect of Judaism, that which is hateful to another, do not, you know, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another person, um, which is an interesting, you know, permutation. You know, most people talk about the golden rule, but that's an interesting concept. Um, Judaism is a monotheistic religion. It's been around for millennia. It um, is a religion that involves doing, um, whether that's ritual or ethical. And um, one of the aspects of the religion that I don't know that many Christians know is that um, there's this idea in Judaism that the soul that we receive from God is pure. And in fact, it's part of the prayers that we say every morning that the soul that we've received from God is a pure one. God has it implanted it within each of us. And there's this sense that we each have an inclination to good and an inclination to evil. And that somebody who is um, strong is somebody who can um, overcome their inclination to evil. It's not that you try and remove it from yourself. And in fact, there are rabbinic stories about how important it is to have that inclination in your life because it's involved in competitive drive. It's involved in building things and creating things. You need it in your life, but it at the same time, it shouldn't be controlling your life. Two things that emerge for me from what you were sharing. One is the story from the Talmud you shared. If we just changed a little of the language, it feels like that could be this week with someone pranking a couple of celebrities. It feels incredibly modern, and yet clearly it has mm -hmm. really an ancient pedigree. I also have uh, been struck thinking about modern thoughts around being good and being bad. In recent years, I feel like there has been enough light shone on celebrity misdeeds that the subject of forgiveness has sort of been talked about in the public discourse, I think, quite a lot. And what has caught my curiosity is much more a Jewish approach to atonement. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a much more powerful and necessary practice in modern times. But I wonder if you might speak a little bit about um, what atonement means within Judaism. Well, we're right now in the month of preparation before the Jewish high holidays begin. The Jewish New Year is the first of those days, and then 10 days later is the Yom Kippur. That would be Rosh Hashanah. 10 days later would be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So I'm thinking about repentance and atonement right now, it's timely. Um, I like the work of um, Maimonides, who was a medieval philosopher. He basically says you need to recognize that you've done wrong. 
you need to do some sort of restitution. Um, you need to reconcile with the person that you've wronged. You need to resolve never to do it again. And this is the part that I think people tend to overlook, which is if you are in the same situation again and you have the same ability to do the same transgression, that you don't do it. I think for most of us, we think that it ends with the, I resolve never to do it again. But for Maimonides, the repentance is not complete until you get to that last stage. Being in the same situation with the ability to do the same transgression and making a different choice. We're talking a little bit about ethics mm -hmm. and you are a Musa facilitator. Mm -hmm which as I understand it, which is extremely little, which is why I'm going to ask you about it. I understand that it's to do with a virtues-based approach to ethics uh, as opposed to a rules-based approach to ethics. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you might explain a little bit more about what being such a facilitator <clears throat> means and, and why and, and what you do with that. The practice of Musar, um, I very much enjoy because it feels more grounded to me. I'm not as um, mystical as somebody who necessarily would be who's more interested in Zohar and Kabbalah. So I'm more interested in the Musar approach to working on our individual traits. And what Musar involves is learning each of the characteristics one by one, determining what it is that you need to learn about that particular characteristic, and then working on it in little ways for a period of time, a week, two weeks, a month. Um, and then if you are part of a bigger group that's also working on Musar, you gather together on a regular basis to discuss the work that you're doing. So, you know, some of the characteristics, it would seem really pretty obvious so, for example, the first characteristic that we generally work on is anava, which is humility. And it would seem like, okay, that's straightforward. I need to be more humble. Except that's not always it. Sometimes you need to be less humble. It just depends on who you are and what you are working on. And, and the way that Dr. Alan Marinas, who's done a lot of work on this and established the Musar Institute, which is where I studied, um, talks about it is we each have our own individual curriculum. And as we work on each of these aspects of ourselves, we get rid of some of the schmutz that's blocking the connection between God and ourselves. You mentioned earlier that rabbis you had encountered that had a maybe a slightly different background. And you yourself have a background that is you know, replete in biological sciences, economics. You practiced uh, in the for-profit world all before you became a rabbi. How has that informed and influenced how you practice your faith and how you act as a rabbi? So I would say the part about the biology, um, seeing how the world fits together and how the world flows, to me, that's the proof I need that God exists in the world. When I'm teaching theology, 
you know, people want to talk about the big miracles and the big things happening in the world. And I'm like, well, look at your hand. <laughs> and the fact that you can use your hand and pick things up and put things down. And, you know, if I up it a little bit and say, well, think about the birth of a baby. Most people are willing to take that as a miracle. But truly, hand, really pretty miraculous what it can do. Uh, everything from playing music to creating great works of art to, you know, writing things down, etc. It's really pretty amazing. And there would be those who would say that having a background in the sciences would make it less likely for you to do religious. And I would say, yeah, no, not for me. <laughs> to me, it makes perfect sense. It's been interesting to me to hear you talk about the scientific background your upbringing, these stories from the Talmud, but the diversity of who you are does not stop there mm -hmm. because we can't leave our conversation without exploring some of your hobbies mm -hmm. because your bio shares, for example, competitive sock knitting. Mm -hmm. Now, there are three words that I don't necessarily expect to see together. Knitting, I get. Socks in particular, okay, but competitive, uh, could you... Tell more. So I learned to knit when I was a kid, but it didn't really take. And then my senior year at Wellesley, I was intrigued because there were a lot of knitters in my dorm, and I asked somebody to teach me, and they did. And I knit my first sweater, and I've knit on and off since then. I learned how to make socks. It's now more than 20 years ago. Um, you know, it's not just straightforward knitting. I mean, there's lots about knitting that's magical. But sock knitting in particular is magical because you have to essentially what's called turn the heel. You have to turn the garment so that it fits. I mean, if you're visualizing a sock that you just got out of the dryer and put flat on the table and you know how it makes like that gentle turn, you have to do that in knitting. So it's magical and it's fun and it's, it's just cool. And socks are a nice portable project. So I've loved sock knitting. I'm part of Ravelry, which is a... Uh, fiber arts-based uh, community um, where you can get patterns and find other people who are doing similar things and, it, you know, all sorts of things. And learned about competitive sock knitting um, a couple of years ago and thought, okay, that sounds like fun. I'm in. I am not the fastest person. I am never going to beat you know, it's international, by the way. There are teams from France and Finland and Germany and the Netherlands and all over the all over the world. But, you know, I did pretty well in a couple of heats. <laughs> and it is a lot of fun. I think the fastest time that I've seen for a competitive sock, and some of those patterns are really hard, is uh, like 12 hours, start to finish. A pair of socks of a certain size for certain specifications. Uh, another of your hobbies is Dungeons and Dragons, which is an interesting juxtaposition with um, anybody of faith. There's clerics in Dungeons and Dragons. I don't play a cleric, but there are clerics in Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I, I love that. You use the word uh, magical earlier, and I, and I love that idea of witchcraft, sorcery, uh, as you say. Um, well, not everything, not everything in Dungeons and Dragons involves magic. Some of it involves monsters. Um, what happened was I had posted an article on my on Facebook about, you know, whether or not there's anti-Semitism in Dungeons and Dragons. And I got a couple of answers from people and, you know, somebody gave me a whole long explanation about why it isn't. And then they ended with, 
boy, I really would miss playing. I wish I could find a game to play. I answered him and I said, well, if you don't mind somebody who's an absolute newbie, I have always wanted to learn since I was a teenager and just never had the opportunity. He's like, oh, let me see. So he set up a game. We started in February of 2021. We meet weekly. We play Dungeons and Dragons according to the you know game that he's written out and he's prepared. Um, I am a rock gnome barbarian. That's that's how I play, and um, so I don't do much. I don't do any magic. I'm I'm very good though at creating things. I have no idea what a rock gnome barbarian is, but I I love it. So yeah, a barbarian is mostly known for bashing things as opposed to finessing things. I think you can guess that by the fact that it's a barbarian. The fact that I'm a rock gnome means that the person that or the the gnome that I play is 36 inches tall. So. She's 36 inches tall, and she's known for for bashing things and killing them. We're really starting to get to the heart of who <laughs> you are now. So um, just as we begin to wrap up here, I we were chatting just, just off air about the natural world and climate. And I know that you like hiking. That's another part of your bio that you share. Um, and you have a particular goal of um, going uh, hiking rim to rim uh, at the Grand Canyon. What is it that you love about hiking and especially i'm thinking about how you've alluded to science and the interest in science and the natural world and i'm i'm curious how hiking perhaps is some extension of of your faith in some sense i'm just going to dive in with an probably an apocryphal story about a very famous orthodox uh german rabbi rabbi samson raphael hirsch and one of his students asked where he was going, and he said, I'm going to the Alps. And the student said, you're going to the Alps? Why would you go to the Alps? And the rabbi replies, when I die, God's going to say, hey, did you see my Alps? And I want to be able to say yes. And I think the same way about the Grand Canyon. God's going to say, did you see my Grand Canyon? And I'm going to be able to say, yeah, I really did. I really did. Thank you. My guest today has been Rabbi Batsheva Appel. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.